friends, it's Abby Cedar, certified life and fertility coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the past of parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. Today's episode has been one of our most popular episodes since our podcast launched, and I'm re-releasing it because it's with Rabbi Sharon Brouse, whose book, The Amen Effect, came out yesterday, January 9th. I, of course, pre-ordered it, and I know that many of you did. Rabbi Brouse speaks so often, as she did on this episode, about holding both, holding both joy and grief, holding both love and heartbreak. And she has become a huge pillar in the conflict in the Middle East right now because she talks so deeply about wanting what's right and just and not wanting innocent people to be killed like we all don't want and what the conflicting and holding feelings are about the war. So in addition to that, she talks openly about her own miscarriages, the power of community, the epidemic of loneliness, and she shares so many nuggets. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. Here's Rabbi Rouse. So welcome to Rabbi Sharon Browse. Thank you, Abby. I'm so happy to be with you. Okay. So there are so many things we could talk about. In the intro I gave, I talked about that you, to me, represent a pillar of holding grief and joy at the same time because you talk about that so often. And I think for most people struggling with infertility, that becomes the greatest challenge. I think we are undergoing so much grief on a daily basis that I don't think people on the outside understand. And yet we are also living our lives and holding moments of joy as well. And you represent that to me. So I'm curious how you as a human and a person and a woman feel about holding grief and joy. Do you think about it on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. And as a rabbi, because you talk about it a lot, um, when does it feel resonant to you and, and what makes you think about it? What a great question. It is something that I talk about a lot. It's something I think about always. You know, I think in our lives, sometimes our lives become very narrow. We become laser focused on one particular struggle or pain point or triumph. And part of the part of the spiritual challenge is sort of stretching ourselves so that we recognize that that is part of a composite picture and not all there is, both mm -hmm. in terms of joy and also in terms of suffering and kind of broadening our own hearts and our own conversation so that we can recognize that at any, at every given moment, we are capacious and complex and always, if we're paying attention, holding grief and sorrow and heartache and, you know, and also joy and the capacity for change and hope within I think this is one of the most powerful parts of being in a community is that we recognize that at any given moment, all of those are all of those various emotions are represented in the space. So there's somebody who's grieving the death of a loved one. There's someone who just got pregnant. There's someone who just found out that they can't get pregnant. There's someone who just fell in love and someone who wonders if they'll ever fall in love or be loved back. And all of that's present. So it forces us, if we can see each other and pay attention to each other, it reminds us to stretch the boundaries of our own hearts so that we can hold all of that because the truth is it's inside of all of us too. And the way you framed it, I think is very powerful and accurate. Even when you're when you're struggling in a particular way with a, on a in, with a health struggle or otherwise, there's still moments of beauty and moments of grace. And so how do you tap into that even in the midst of struggle? And then 
how, when you're in the midst of moments of incredible joy, do we remember that there's still pain and heartache? And I believe that our most powerful um, Jewish rituals are designed to actually help us remember that capaciousness and hold all of that. Like you and I have talked about this before, but the ritual of breaking the glass under the chuppah, for example, and the whole idea that even when our hearts are so full and we have what we yearned for and maybe what we fought for, there's still people in that very circle of our closest folks who surround us at our wedding day who are broken themselves. And we're still in the context of a, of a society that's broken. And so if we can hear the sound of shattered glass in the moment of our greatest fullness and hold the complexity of both being full and broken at the same time, then we're really building a spiritual consciousness. And I think that's I think that's the goal of community. That's the goal of sort of spiritual self-development and one of the hardest and most important lessons for us. And which is what I was going to ask. So how do we do it? So when we're in these moments of deep, deep grief, how do we remember that there's joy? Especially, and I think about you as like a spiritual guide and, and people come to you to talk about all the facets of what they're feeling how do you honor what they're feeling and navigate them into maybe something that feels a little lighter or more positive or healthier? Well, the first thing is, I don't think that my job or any of our jobs is to try to cheer people up when they're feeling broken. And I think that there is this societal assumption that to be a good friend is to help pull someone out of their pain. And I and I'm, I wonder what your experience has been with this. But as I think about some of the harder moments in my life, I didn't want to be pulled out of my pain. I wanted to be accompanied through my pain. I wanted somebody who could honor where I was, not by trying to negate it and saying, but look, there's all this beauty right over here. You're just not looking in the right place. But instead to just help me feel safe in my brokenness until I was ready to move through it. There's a story that I, and I write about this in my book, which is coming out. There's a story that's a very well-known story in the Talmud about a rabbi named Rabbi Yochanan who had a tremendous loss in his life. He First, he lost his parents very tragically, and they, it was said that he would go to mourners and he would just sit with them and he would share his loss with them and they would share their loss with him. And that was comforting. He wasn't mm -hmm. saying, but what about all the beautiful times you had with them? He was just saying, I know what it feels like to be broken. And then he lost 10 children. It's like an unthinkable horror. And perhaps because of that, he developed a special kind of spiritual presence in which when people would break, whether they fell ill physically or spiritually and emotionally, he would come sit by their side and he would take their hand and he would guide them on a path toward healing and then there was one day where he himself felt fell ill and another rabbi came to his side and basically did what he always did. And the rabbis of the Talmud say like, well, but he's the healer. Why does he need somebody else to do it with him? Like to, someone else to accompany him. This is what he does. And the answer that they give, and you, maybe you've heard this expression before, but they say a prisoner cannot free himself from prison. Mm. We can't do the healing work alone. We can't do grief work alone we can't be expected to suffer alone. And there's, there's meaning that can be found through these journeys of struggle and darkness when we, when we know that we're accompanied by a loving presence. And so the, the, the most, this is, I think one of the most important lessons, it's about sacred accompaniment 
-hmm. about walking together with somebody who's hurting and reminding us that we still have mobility in us. We still have the life force within us. And at some point, there's a moment when Rabbi Yochanan's at the bedside of one friend and the friend just, and Rabbi Yochanan in this one story, he wants to pull him out too quickly. Oh, here, maybe it's because of this. Maybe you feel bad because of that. And the friend said, no, I just, I feel so sad about how how we're all going to die, including you. And so Rabbi Yochanan sits down and they just cry together. And then at some point they're ready to start moving out of the grief. And so I think that that's what I've seen happen with congregants and friends and family members and with me personally, that what we need is not somebody to say like, I am going to distract you from the pain because there's a really funny movie out that you need to see because you just need to laugh. But instead, like, I'm just here. And if what you need is to laugh, then I'll help you laugh. But if what you need is to cry, I'm just going to sit with you while you cry. And maybe I'll cry too. And if Mm. what you need is silence, then we'll do none of those things. And we'll just sit in quiet that being together is the is actually the most powerful medicine that we have. Mm, I love that so much. I think the narrative in the fertility community is the same. Hold my hand through it. Just tell me that you're here for me. Just tell me that you see me. Don't try it. Like I always say, you have to feel it to heal it. And that's mm-hmm. really, I feel like what your story, what that story about Rabbi Yochanan is, he needed to feel it for himself. He can't always be healing everybody else. He needed his own healing. And I think so much of the oh, quick, let's watch a movie and laugh is actually about the support person's own uncomfortable feelings of sitting in those hard moments. And so sometimes until we go through them ourselves and realize that that's actually what we would have needed is just somebody to sit there, we can't actually do that for somebody else. So not that I wish people to go through hard things, but I think that's a part of the journey of being a good friend and support system as well. You know, and the support person, the caregiver, they, I mean, they also are experiencing the rupture of someone they love being unwell. And it's very painful to to deal with that, that sense of helplessness that I can't pull someone I love out of their pain. And so as a result, we're trying, we try desperate strategies because we are so uncomfortable with their suffering and our impotence to, to cure them of their suffering instead of actually, so we're centering ourselves as caregivers instead of centering the person who's actually yes. in the pain. And and I think when we're suffering, seeing somebody center themselves when you're the, when we are the ones who need the help feels very almost disembodied. It's like, "Hold on, you came here to visit me. Why am I comforting you?" And, you know, a lot, I've heard this from a lot of mourners who say, "I don't want to face people because they hear my story and they burst into tears." And then I have to make them feel better. And I'm like, mm. "You don't have to make anyone feel better right now. The job of community is to hold people who are struggling and suffering and in pain. And we have to train ourselves to be prepared to do that, knowing that we too will also at some point be in the position of struggling, suffering, and being in pain. And we'll need community in those moments as well. Mm, Such a beautiful point. So to that end, I'd love to, to talk about your own journey to your children. You have three beautiful children, and I know it wasn't smooth sailing all the way through. So are you willing to share a little bit about your story and your your own sort of reproductive history? Sure, sure. I'll share. Thank you for asking. I mean, the first time I got pregnant, I remember so well. This was a deeply wanted pregnancy, and I found out I was pregnant I went to an ultrasound era of Rosh Hashanah, the evening of the Jewish New Year, one of the holiest moments of the year. 
and I, I wanted to, I wanted to see this heartbeat so that I could finally share the news with my family. Because when I first found out I was pregnant, I thought I'm going to wait a little bit and just make sure that everything's okay. And then I'll tell my family right before Shoshana. And, you know, and I had this moment with my doctor in the ultrasound room. My doctor died very tragically in the past year, by the way. And he was a beloved OBGYN to many people in the community here. And I had this moment with him when, you know, we were so optimistic and so excited and all the indications were that this was going to be a healthy pregnancy. And then he just, he couldn't find the heartbeat. And he, I actually shared this at his funeral. It was the only time I've ever spoken publicly about it, but he, he was sitting with the ultrasound and looking, looking, looking. And then he sat down and he said, I'm so sorry, but there's no heartbeat here. And he said, I think that God just spared you from having from from having a full term pregnancy with a a fetus that could never have grown into a you know a, a healthy human child and he wept mm-hmm. and i was so struck by this sense of gratitude because of the way that he framed it for me and i just felt like i had received this undeserved blessing that i could have gone through and my whole family could have gone through this whole journey and then had so much suffering on the other side, but I had sort of been spared. He framed it to me like I had somehow been spared and he's not, he wasn't a religious guy. He, I think he thought that's what I needed. And I did on some level, I guess. And so then, you know, and then David and I had to call the family and say, Hey, we were calling to give you good news, but it's actually not good news. And I remember I carried that fetus through the high holy days because they Mm. couldn't get, they were waiting to see if, you know, what would happen. And, Anyway, I was so aware of Unatanatokef, this central prayer that we say on the High Holy Days and who will live and who will die. And I thought, mm. I'm actually carrying a fetus that's not alive inside of me right now that was alive two days ago. And, you know, like, what does that mean to hold that and be religious and kind of and, and also feel this incredible sense of grace at the same time that I felt I felt fortunate that it had happened to me because of the way that he framed it. David and I dealt with it really differently. David felt a real like incredible sense of loss. He was so ready to be a parent. I felt like it was an incredible gift. So I'm when we sort of navigated that what happens when, you know, when we don't exactly experience loss the same way, I'm sure you spend a lot of time talking and thinking Mm -hmm. about this anyway. So my best friend, when I called her to tell her that I just had a pregnancy loss, she said, that's great news. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, it means you can get pregnant. Mm. So mm. I held that too. I thought that, mm-hmm. okay, okay. So maybe one day. And anyway, so sometime passed, we had Eva. She, I had what many people have who have start with pregnancy losses, which is, I, I just learned to not take anything for granted. Like I never mm. said I'm expecting because I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting anything. Like, in fact, mm-hmm. I was expecting anything. It was a miscarriage, you know? Did you go into that pregnancy with Eva, your oldest daughter, with more anxiety or kind of just like neutral and no expectations? No, ex- I, no expectations. I thought, mm-hmm. okay, I'm, we got pregnant again. I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Let's see if I can make it to this marker. Okay. We made it to mm-hmm. that marker. Let's see if we can make it to the next and the next. And I felt like it was a spiritual reorientation. I mean, just w- when your first pregnancy is a miscarriage, I think it, te- it, it teaches you something. I mean, I once sat in a shiur, a Torah lesson with an Orthodox rabbi and a group of men. And the rabbi asked this question, 
why are all of the matriarchs on like struggling with fertility? I mean, every one of them struggles with fertility. Which is, by the way, on my list of questions for you, but we'll get there. Well, I, <laughs> we, we'll, we'll get there. So, but, yeah. I, but like, I thought, and all the men were like, you know, ruminating. And I thought having now had, at this point, I had had a couple of miscarriages and I was like, obvious. it's obvious. It's obvious because- when you have to fight for something, it's a fundamentally different experience than when it comes very easily and without a struggle. So it was very obvious to me why Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel, like why there was so much of the book of Genesis is about fertility challenges and struggles. Okay. And so I felt just, and my whole orient, spiritual orientation was one of gratitude and acceptance. And I really credit my doctor with that because I think I think that he framed, he wouldn't, he, I know other people who had the same doctor and he didn't frame it the same way for them because he didn't think that's what they needed. But I guess he was right that that's what I needed. Mm. So after Eva actually, went, I got pregnant again and I remember going to my sister-in-law's house for brunch and I was, we were going to tell them and, um, and we said, oh, we have something to share. And she said, oh, we have something to share. And we were like, oh my God, oh my God. Anyway, we were both pregnant. We had basically the same due date. I mean, within a couple of days of each other. But we both started to cry when we said that because we both knew that the, like, the likelihood was that both of these pregnancies would not you know, mm. turn into human babies. And so they wouldn't come to, you know, to fruition. And so like, what are the, you know, what are the chances? And and we made this, you know, decision together. Like we're gonna just love and support each other, no matter what happens to either of us. And um, shortly after, a few months passed, and then I had another miscarriage. And she, her pregnancy, thank God, was um, safe and healthy. And that was the beautiful Becca Lightrake came into the world. And I very fortunately was able to get pregnant shortly after that. And the day that Sammy was born. Like shortly after, second, I was going to say she's your second daughter. She's my second daughter, and very short. Like the you know, as soon as she was born, Paulette turned to Becca and she said, "Your best friend was just born." And these two have had this like incredible she was right. soul yeah. connection from the moment they were born. And I have always thought, I they were meant to be together like soul sisters. And I don't yeah. know what the soul of that other fetus would have been, but that was mm -hmm. not who was supposed to be in this world. And it was Sammy who was supposed to be here and couldn't have been because I literally got pregnant, I think, as soon as I was allowed to after the after the loss. Mm -hmm. But I had an incredible experience when I when I lost that pregnancy because at that point we had already started Ikar and I was actually in the midst of officiating a Brit Milah, um, a welcoming a new baby boy into the Jewish community and into the covenant. And I was in the midst of the ceremony and I was holding our friends and congregants, eight day old baby. And I felt the miscarriage. Mm. I felt it. I knew it happened I, now. And I felt this like searing pain. And I thought, oh my God, I'm holding an eight day old baby in the middle of a bris. And I just lost my pregnancy and nobody here knows but me. And I handed the baby off and I ran into the bathroom and I was, I mean, it was, it was a very, it was a really striking moment. And, you know, and I, I had this sense of like, really what, I mean, speaking of holding joy and grief at once, yes. feeling so moved to be in the presence of life and death at the same moment and, mm. and loving this family and their, you know, and their baby and feeling the sense of loss but also recognizing this sort of expanded picture. And I think when you're like, when you're in the work as a, you know, as a caregiver, whether that's a clergy or fertility coach or a, 
you know, social worker, therapist, like you always, they're all, they're all kinds of stories. You're never holding only, only loss because there's also beauty even in those stories. And especially for a rabbi, it's funerals, but it's also weddings and it's also, it's divorce and it's also new love. And it's also Brit Mila. And I was dealing with this, you know, this, now I was a little bit used to like the idea of pregnancy loss, but dealing with it in the midst of a Brit Mila, I thought, Oh, the, <laughs> that's an interesting position for like for a rabbi to be in. Mm-hmm. And there's one more piece to it, which uh, well, I'll I'll share. Yeah. <laughs> so I there there were a couple of late, very late term pregnancy losses that happened right around that time in our community and right after. And in, there were two different uh, ones that happened where the people where the the people who are suffering the loss called me to pastor to them in very very traumatic and tragic circumstances far more than mine which were fairly like on the early side and i was pregnant again because i got pregnant so quickly after this loss and i felt abby this sense of almost shame or embarrassment yeah. that my bot like that but my body was going to hurt somebody that I was in the position to care for mm-hmm. and who I was called to care for. And so they were calling me in as their pastor, as their, you know, as their rabbi. And I felt like as soon as they got a look at my body, I would be hurting them. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I, I, I really struggled with how to like, can I just hide for the last four months of the pregnancy when it's super obvious or what do I wear so that maybe they won't be able to tell? And that was that was also challenging. Like b- both holding loss in light of someone else's, you know, m- celebration, and mm-hmm. also holding my own. You know, now I'm at the, on this side of the of the fertility struggle, and my job is to care for people who aren't yet or who might never be. And so, how do I how do I have the most human connection possible mm-hmm. without causing any any pain. And just by literally physically standing there with your belly, you are a trigger for whatever the loss represents to the family or the couple. So hard. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think all the time about Hannah, whom I'm sure you've, you know, re- wrestled with and, and talked about, but Hannah from, um, in Tanakh, in the Bible, who's who really struggled with infertility and she was you know, hurt. She was a co-wife and the, the other, the other wife got pregnant again and again and again. And each time it was like a knife in her heart. And she was in such anguish over her struggle. And in the rabbis envision what that anguish looked like in the Talmud. And these are incredible passages because these are all men standing, you know, sitting around the room, basically talking about what Hannah's struggle with fertility looked like. And they, and they talk about, the language is so powerful. She says, what's the point of these breasts if not to feed a child? Like she's struggling with why, do, like, why doesn't my body work the way that God designed it to work? Mm-hmm. And why would God put me in a body like this if I can't use it? So there, that's, their, that's a male rabbinic imagination. But I've heard people, I've heard women yeah. share that too. And then scribes, this one gets a baby and this one gets a baby and this one and not me. And I've, I, I, you know, 
<laughs> many people describe feeling this way. Like you're walking through the supermarket and every damn person you see is pregnant after you've, mm -hmm. you know, after you can't get your, you know, your positive pregnancy test or after you have a loss or after you realize you find out you're never going to get pregnant. Literally there's pregnant women everywhere. And so I was very cognizant of that as a pregnant rabbi that my very presence, you know, especially when I'm pastoring to somebody who's struggling with fertility, but even just standing up in front of the room is a trigger for some people. And so how do you create a sacred space that can hold all of that in one heart? And, and honestly, and, and the way that we did it ultimately was just being honest about it. Like just saying, this is really hard. We're going to honor that, you know, all the people who had babies this year, some of them have been on 17 years, 17 IDF yeah. uh, fertility journeys, right? Mm -hmm. And we also know that there's some people who aren't coming up for this Aaliyah right now, this honor, because they haven't, you know, gotten to this place. And yes. that's really painful and really important. And we're going to find ways to celebrate with each other, even as we also grieve with each other. I think honesty in general is always the best policy in terms of any sort of support. So even just to circle back to what we were talking about before with being a good supportive person for somebody going through loss, grief, any of these things is like, I think it's so important to sometimes say, I don't know the right thing to do right now. And I don't know the right way to be there for you right now, but it's important to me and that, and I want to do the best that I can. And I think by acknowledging in a large room of people experiencing so many different feelings at one moment by just being honest and and be, letting those people feel seen as well is so actually huge and mm -hmm. important for them, you know? And just to go back quickly to the Hana thing and, and really my Bible questions, like, look, we don't know what it was like day, day in, day out <laughs> during those times. There are tons of stories that could have been told, right? Why are so many of them biblical fertility stories? Why do you think, sure, I see your point. And, and maybe the answer just is because to understand how hard it was to go through something that's a basic human right, we should call attention to it. But I find the detail and the uh, frequency with which the story comes up really fascinating. I can only read it as an as a, a, an attempt to message to us as unequivocally as possible that we take nothing for granted, that this is a, this is a blessing. It's a gift. We can't ever work on the assumption that something is going to work, you know, is going to, is going to work out, but every single day is a gift. And, and it's a, it's a shift in mentality, by the way, that doesn't end when the baby comes either, right. if you're lucky enough Absolutely. to have a baby, yeah. right? I mean, everything that we yearn for, once we achieve that, we yearn for the next thing. Like the people who just want to get pregnant, then suddenly the bar shifts to, I just want to get through the first trimester. And then I Absolutely. just want to have a, you know, a healthy pregnancy and delivery, you know, and then I just want to get, you know, my kid into the right ECC so they can thrive. And then I just want to get my kid the support they need th with their reading challenges so that they can. And I just want my kid to have a friend and I just yeah. want, like, we keep moving the bar. And I think that's yeah. part of parenting and my read of the text having, I mean, I have three Thank God, I have three healthy kids and have had a couple of um, pregnancy losses. And um, I mean, my read of it is that, like, assume nothing. I, you know, don't, don't, don't numb yourself with the fantasy that everything works out because sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And and that's just the deepest spiritual message of of our tradition. It's what we try to bring ourselves to on Yom Kippur and on Purim. 
when we say life can change in an instant and the, the, the people you love most in the world might be gone tomorrow. And what that does is it doesn't, it's not meant to be a punishment. It's meant to awaken us to the privilege of being alive right now because we don't have forever and we don't know what will happen. And we might all dream of having, you know, four healthy children and blah, blah, blah. But like that might not happen or for some it will, but for, but for many it won't. And I, you know, I read this, there's a psychologist, Lucy Hone, who writes about resiliency. She had a, suffered a, a loss of a child. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. And Mm-mm. she writes about gr- uh, resilient grieving. And she says, resilient people understand that shit happens. They don't separate themselves from human suffering and human tragedy. They get that it happens. So then when it happens to them, they see their loss as part of a world of human suffering and human striving. And it just that builds a, a kind of um, padding to catch us when we fall, because we'll all fall. You know, we all yeah. struggle in one way or another. And some people who don't have any fertility struggles then have lots of you know, marital struggles or child struggles, or, you know, they're like, we all, we all struggle. And so I think about um, her, Dr. Hone's advice all the time, put your, plant yourself in a, in an honest context of, of the fullest human experience. Community helps us do that. Ritual helps us do that. Awareness of, of, you know, friends and, and partnerships and relationships, like these all help build that. So that when the inevitable occurs, we recognize that we, you know, that this is part of the human experience and that we're not alone. It's never going to take mm. the pain away. It just contextualizes pain, mm. part of the human experience. Mm. And resilience, I talk about all the times, not something we usually seek for ourselves. We end up becoming resilient by mistake mm. and how we work that or take it and run with it or be able to use it to support others is actually so important. I'm definitely going to look her up, Dr. Lucy Hone. I know there's so much I could continue to ask. You're so full of wonderful insight and stories and love, and I I appreciate you. One quick thing I do want to talk about because you're so wonderfully supportive of this issue is um, Judaism and reproductive rights, specifically abortion care and access to abortion. Specifically, you know, I'd love you to just share, because not all of my guests are Jewish, obviously, what the stance is from the religious perspective on abortion and reproductive rights, and also how you as a colleague of people who publicly disagree with those rights how do you handle that? Because like I think about, I don't have many, but I do have some family members who, let's say, might not be anti-abortion or pro-life, but will vote accordingly and think like, well, that issue is not that important. And I cannot seem to reconcile those feelings. I mm-hmm. live, I live, that makes me, it triggers me every time and it makes me angry. And so I'm just curious how you manage it and, and what your feelings and thoughts in general are are on this very hot button topic. Right. Like with every issue, you will find Jews who argue that the authentic Jewish position on this is one thing and Jews who argue exactly the opposite. In the Torah, it is made expressly clear that taking the life of a fetus is not the equivalent of taking a human life. That that is clear. The situation, the scenario that's set up is that two men are fighting with each other and a pregnant woman gets in the middle of them and she's struck by accident and she miscarries as a result of it. And so the premise is that 
they're not res- the person who struck her is not responsible for taking a human life, which means that the fetus is not yet considered a human life. In fact, in the codes in the legal in Jewish legal texts that came subsequently, it is said that a fetus does not constitute human the equivalent of human life until the greater part of its head has emerged from the womb. And so really, you can imagine what that means in terms of the current debates that we're having, that even up until the very end of a pregnancy, there is a clear hierarchy. The mother's life takes precedence over the fetal life because the fetus is not yet considered a full human until the head emerges. Now, in general, like we, because once the fetus does emerge, then you can't choose which life is more valuable because whose blood is redder. That's the way the rabbis conceive of this. Okay. At the same time, as I've been sharing, the ability to get pregnant and to hold a pregnancy is, is really seen as a, as a gift from God, a spirit, you know, not something that should ever be taken lightly, an incredible blessing. And so terminating a pregnancy should be taken very, very seriously. And so the principle is that fetal life is precious. Human life is sacred. And the the conditions in which an abortion could could be permissible, according to Jewish law, are when when the life of the mother is in danger. And the reason that you'll find a difference of opinion on this matter among various different Jewish uh, interpreters of the law is because some people read that in the narrowest possible way. If continuing this pregnancy will mean that the mother will die or the parent will die, then you can abort the fetus, but under no other circumstances. Whereas other people will read it more expansively and say, if the life of the pregnant person is at is in jeopardy, that could mean not only that person's phys- physical life, but their emotional life. And, mm-hmm. and if you see somebody who's tortured by the idea of being pregnant, knows that they cannot provide for this child in the world, knows that the partner (laughs) will kill them, fears that their partner will kill them if this baby comes into the world. I mean, all the stories that we hear and read about every day, that is the, the emotional health of the pregnant person is absolutely to be considered in determining if an abortion should be permissible. I do believe that abortion should be accessible, available, equitable for all people under all circumstances. I feel like this is something to be a, a question to be taken very seriously, to be determined by the mother or the, pre- the pregnant person and whoever she chooses to bring into that conversation with her and not to be determined by any legislators, any legislators under any circumstances. And I think we should approach that question with great humility and with great awareness of the seriousness of the decision that's being made. And so I hope that's clear that yeah, abortion is healthcare. It's not birth control. I think is not to not to dumb it down, but I think that that is sort of in in a very layman's terms. I think, look, the other side, as in not the side that believes abortion is healthcare, I think has created the narrative that there are all these people using it as a method of birth control. In reality, that's not what it is. And that's what you're focusing on. I understand it's not to be taken lightly and it is to be taken seriously. And it's healthcare because it's a health issue, not something you just loosely throw around as an option. Right. And I want to say that, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years now, and I know I've I've pastored to many people who've had to have abortions and who have chosen to have abortions. And 
I don't know anybody that's ever taken it lightly. I think that the the conversation has become so distorted that we're not actually talking about what's really at stake, which is do women and pregnant people actually have autonomy over their own bodies? Can we make decisions about ourselves and our futures? Or does somebody who really doesn't understand female reproductive organs and might not share my religious beliefs and might, might have no knowledge or understanding of me as a human being be able to make that decision for me? Right. Is there any, as we wrap up, piece of Torah or cliche or saying that you <laughs> think about like on a maybe not daily basis, but a regular basis that, that guides you or makes you feel good? I will just, I'll share with you what I think of most often, my the mantra that sits with me most often, which comes from the book of Psalms. And we say, we say, which means out of the narrowest place, I cried out and you answered me with expansiveness. Mm. And the you in that case is God. But for some people, the you is a friend or a partner or a doctor or a loved one. But the idea that we all walk through the Metsar, we all walk through moments of real narrowness when it feels like the reality that we're living in is inescapable and the pain is inescapable. And I think what the text is trying to say is that crying out from that place makes the other aware of our need for companionship. And once we're joined in our sorrow, we're able to see greater expansive possibilities. So I hold that with me all the time. And I have, I have lots of people who I know who write this little verse down and put it by their bedside and just hold it out of the narrowness. I cried out to you and you answered me with great expansiveness. I love that. Thank you so much. What is the name of your book that's coming out in January? It's called The Amen Effect, Ancient Ooh. Wisdom to Heal Our Hearts and Our Broken World. I cannot wait for it. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You Thank you me. for being my spiritual leader and my dear friend. And I love you. Thank you. You too. I've heard that episode so many times and I've shared it with so many people and every time it resonates so deeply. A reminder, Rabbi Browse's book available from Penguin Random House is The Amenifat, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. You do not need to be Jewish or a person of faith at all to love this book. There's so much universal truth and happiness and support that is exuded. So please go out and buy yourself a copy of this book, The Amen Effect by Rabbi Sharon Browse. While you're at it, if you love this episode, please share it with somebody else. Tag us, rate us, review us, subscribe. Follow me on Instagram at Abby Feeder, at The Fertility Chick, at Encircle Fertility. And please remember, you do not need to go through anything alone, especially not infertility. See you next week.